So, chapter uh, Exodus 11, uh, going through to uh, chapter 12, verse 13, is our first reading. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbours for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favourably disposed toward the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, This is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the female slave, who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all the wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbour, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until f the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire um, along with bitter herbs and bread without, made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs and internal organs. Do not leave any of it until morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you, t you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On the same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. 
and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Now we're turning to Revelation chapter 5. And we're reading from verse 5 through to verse 10. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe, language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. There ends the reading. Praise be to God. So uh, most of you, I think, would recognize the classical piece, The Hall of the Mountain King. Do you know what I'm talking about? If you don't recognize the name, you'd recognize the tune, I think, you know. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a, uh, thank you, yeah. If you don't, you get the idea. It's, it's a beautiful little tune um, by Grieg. Uh, and if, if you've heard it before, I've heard it with its orchestral arrangement, it kind of starts really small and slow, just a few instruments. Dun, 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 dun. But, but as it goes, it's only about three minutes long, the piece. It, the melody repeats over and over again, and, it, and each time it builds a little bit more. More instruments are added. Uh, the tempo gets faster and faster. It builds and builds, and then instruments begin to come in weaving in and out there's key transpositions the discordant harmonies are added in and it gets faster and faster and louder and louder and the intensity and the tension builds and builds and builds and you begin to wonder when's it going to end how's it how could it possibly get any more full than this and then just when you can't imagine it going any further it stops and it resolves with a clash of symbols it's done I was listening to it this week and it occurred to me that the Hall of the Mountain King would be a fitting soundtrack for Exodus 1 through 12. Because Exodus 1 through 12 is a war that's staged in the Hall, not of the Mountain King, but of the King of Egypt. It's a war between Pharaoh and his gods and Yahweh, the God of Israel. And just like the Hall of the Mountain King, the story uh, begins small and slow. 
It's just Moses and Aaron, two men in, in front of Pharaoh, the mightiest in the world, calling for freedom for their people. But quickly, what happens? The intensity builds. A staff becomes a snake. And water becomes blood. Then there's frogs and there's gnats and there's flies. Then livestock are dead across the land. And there's boils on people. Then there's a thunderstorm of lightning and hail like never has been seen before. And then swarms of locusts cover the land. And then finally, at least penultimately, a dread darkness, so thick you can feel it. Each plague, each judgment is worse than the last. And they all seem to be building and building and building to this terrible finale. And we wonder, how's it going to end? How could it possibly get worse? But it can, and it does. The final plague is so dreadful that it brings mighty Pharaoh to his knees. So as we consider these final chapters of the Exodus story, and there's a little bit to go, we are going to be confronted. Because here we come face to face with God Almighty in all of his holy and righteous wrath. And as we do, we need to remember something really important. That God is who he is. God is not accountable to us. We are accountable to God. But as the old saying goes, it is always darkest before the dawn. And this passage, dark as it is, as much as it leads us down into the deep, dark, cavern of God's judgment, it will also bring us soaring up into the heights of his mercy and grace. So let's begin as we come to the final plague. The final plague. The tenth plague. Now this plague uh, doesn't come out of the blue. It's important to note that right at the beginning, Pharaoh was warned that it would come to this. So if we go back to chapter 4, verse 22, Moses takes this message to Pharaoh. This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. See, Pharaoh was warned that if he continued to refuse God, if he continued to not listen to Moses, if he continued to oppress Israel to bring them into slavery and keep them there, then there would be dire consequences, something far worse than frogs and flies. God's ultimate act of judgment would be to take the life of every firstborn son in the land. From the firstborn of Pharaoh himself in his palace to that of the lowliest slave, even grinding in a mill, and even from the livestock in the field. This is a picture of complete judgment across the entire land. No one is safe from this, not the, most, the richest and the most powerful and wealthy, neither 
the poorest and the weakest, not even the cattle. So what's going on? What's so significant about the firstborn son? Why is it that? Well, for ancient people, we have to remember lineage is everything. Lineage is, lineage is everything. The firstborn son is, is not just a beloved child, though of course certainly is that, but the firstborn son represents the whole family, represents their wealth, represents what is uh, um, valuable for them, represents their lineage, their ability to have descendants, their ability to continue. The firstborn son is the centerpiece of a family. And so since this judgment strikes at the lifeblood of the family, that means that it strikes at the very heart of Egypt. It's a national disaster of unprecedented proportions. And Moses is not being metaphorical when he imagines that there is going to be a wail of grief rising from Egypt like nothing heard before or since. Now, there's lots of questions that we have about this, isn't there? As I said, we will be confronted with this picture of God and his judgment. And we ask questions of reasonableness, questions of fairness, questions of justice. And we're going to get to them, but before we do, let's just be, remind ourselves of the context of this plague. Why is God punishing in this particular way? Well, first of all, uh, God is judging Egypt for very specific crimes. Remember, all the way back at the beginning, Pharaoh has Israel enslaved, and Israel is growing and growing and growing. And so his policy that he enacts to keep Israel manageable is to kill not just the firstborn, but every male child born into Israel. And he brings the whole nation uh, to become complicit in this, because his command is that every citizen would take part in this slaughter. So this final plague is judgment against Egypt for that specific crime, but bigger than that for the crime of their oppression of the Israelites for centuries. And the whole land is guilty. But there's another aspect to this judgment. Verse 12 tells us that God's judgment here is not just on Pharaoh and Egypt, but on Egypt's gods. That's verse, uh, verse 12. What's going on here? Well, it, it, the Egyptians trusted in this pantheon of gods for their lives. They had gods for everything. Gods for the harvest, God for the sun, God for the moon, God for the, the water of the Nile. They had gods for everything. And so, uh, and, and they, tr they look to these gods for their well-being, their prosperity, their safety. So, um, they imagined that them, Egypt, as the mightiest nation in the world, was, the reason it was mighty was because their gods were mighty. And the gods gave them security. So God's purpose here is not just to show off his power, and it's not just to judge Egypt for what they'd done to Israel. His purpose here is to show up they're gods for what they really are. Nothing more than bits of wood and stone. Gods that are powerless to save and powerless to help. That actually Egypt's might has nothing to do with the gods they worship, but purely because God, the true God, has allowed it. 
Last week, Chris um, showed us how each plague was a direct attack on an Egyptian god. And this last plague is a shot at all of them. It's an attack on the whole pantheon of Egypt. Final proof that none of them can save their worshippers from the judgment of Yahweh. And that means that this is not just a message for Egypt... It's a message for the whole world because Egypt being the mightiest nation, every other nation naturally looked to them as a sign of what it means to have made it, to be mighty. So the dismantling of their religious structure is a sign to the whole world that only the God of Israel can truly accomplish salvation and only he is truly worthy of worship. So here we are confronted with a side of God that's not pleasant. This is a God who does not hesitate to judge, does not hesitate to punish. He does not hesitate even to take life. Now, as I said, there are factors at play that lessen the blow of this. Egypt took the lives of the Israelite children first. God is... Uh, is, is getting retribution for that. The punishment fits the crime, so to speak. And the crime extends to the whole nation, so all Egyptians were culpable, so the judgment extends to the whole nation as well. And of course, Pharaoh's arrogant pride meant that he refused to listen to the previous plagues, which were much lesser. He did not repent, and so his pride and arrogance has brought them to this place. There are things that help to lessen the blow. It's softened. But it still hits hard, doesn't it? We are so tempted to tell God what he should be, aren't we? We want him to act the way we want him to act, to to be reasonable in our view of reasonableness. We like to try and fit him into our little boxes. But God responds with the same words that he gave to the Israelites. He simply says, I am the Lord. It's repeated over and over. I am the Lord. In other words, God is the one who dictates reality, not us. He is the one who says what is right and what is wrong and what is just, not us. He is the one who has the right to take life and to give it, not us. God refuses to fit into our little boxes of reasonableness. In fact, he's too big to fit even into the whole universe. He refuses to let us define him. He defines himself. Now, of course, someone will say, yeah, yeah, but Pete, isn't your God supposed to be loving? Isn't the whole point of Christianity? He's supposed to be loving. It's true. And actually, it's a really common objection, a really difficult one. In the face of this horrible judgment, how do we see God as being a God of love? Well, the reality is that true love never allows the objects of love to get away with destructive behavior. And true love, if God really loves the world, he would never allow anything to to ruin and destroy and bring death to it. 
It's not loving to allow criminals to go unpunished in our justice system. Neither for them, because they need a chance to face their, uh, what they have done and perhaps be reformed. And it's not loving either to the victims of the crime, is it? Because they cry for justice to be done. So our ideas of justice actually stem from this idea that God is both loving and also just. He is both compassionate and merciful, but also holy. Our own justice system is built on this because we assume that justice should be fair, it should be swift, it should be impartial. And it should not be about mercy. And God shows mercy here. Our issue then is not that God shouldn't punish evil. We need him to. Our justice system is built on this idea. Because our justice system is so often fallible, it fails, it doesn't do justice rightly all the time. So actually we need a God who sees everything, who is completely impartial and who will bring justice to all aspects of reality. Now our problem is not that. Our problem is that God's justice necessarily means that he should punish us. Because if humanity brought death into the world for our selfishness, our pride, and our greed, and so what we have wrought then is death for ourselves and for this world, then what we deserve is also death. And and if we deserve nothing but death, then anything we receive that's not death is pure grace. Pure, pure grace. We need a God who is fully committed to justice, otherwise he is not good. But we also need a God who is lovingly gracious, because if he is not, then none of us will survive. So these chapters of Exodus present to us a God who is unrepentantly, both full of judgment and wrath, and also love and mercy and grace. And this is clear because intertwined into this account of this final judgment, this final plague, is the account of the first Passover. Mixed with judgment is grace. First Passover. Each of the previous nine plagues Uh, affected all of Egypt. But we note that actually each of those previous nine didn't affect Israel. Even that last one, the plague of darkness that covered the whole land, the one place where it wasn't dark, the lights were on, was where Israel was, the Israelites' camp. But note that this final plague is different. Death comes to the whole land and the Israelite towns were not an exception. So if Israel was to come through unharmed, there would have to be special provision for this plague. So God gives them some specific instructions, very, very specific. Each household was, gonna, was to take a single lamb, a young, perfect and spotless lamb. And on the 10th day of the month, they would take it into their house and they would care for it. And then four days later, they would kill it. And they would take some of its blood and they'd get a branch of a hyssop plant and they'd dip it in the blood and they would paint that blood onto the doorways of their homes. 
Then on that same night later, they would roast the lamb and they would eat it along with some bitter herbs and along with some unleavened flatbread. And they would eat their meal and they would eat it quickly as a family, clothed and ready to leave at a moment's notice. And this would be a ritual observed, not just on that first Passover, but every year since. In fact, even to this very day, thousands of years of Passovers. It's called the Passover because, quite literally, God passed over Israel that fateful night. And the Passover is such an important aspect to the life of Israel, so important to their history and their story, that God says in these verses that their whole calendar was to be formed around it. That month that Passover began in would become, from that day forward, the first month of the year. Passover would begin on the 10th month, uh, the 10th day of Nisan. The month of Nisan was when the lamb would be brought in, and the 14th day it would be killed and eaten. So it's so important to Israel, so important to the story of the Old Testament, we need to go deeper to try and understand it. So the Passover is two things. Uh, First of all, it's a sacrifice, but it's also a meal. It's a sacrifice and it's a meal. How is it a sacrifice? Well, the lamb is killed, and it's a perfect and spotless lamb. So it's a fitting lamb for a sacrifice, The spotlessness doesn't make it taste any better. It's purely ritualistic to make it a good and fitting sacrifice. And Note it's taken into the family home for four days. Why? Does it make sense? It could have just been out in the field. Well, I think it's because as you bring it in and care for it, it becomes like a member of the family. That's long enough for the kids to give it a name. It's long enough for them to grow to love it. Cuteness. It's only one year old, so it's pretty cute still. There's enough time uh, for when the time came for the slaughter to happen that it would be a moment not just of here's some food, but a moment of grief, of sadness, as if they were losing a family member. And for that home to be saved, this, this valuable, perfect, innocent, and loved little lamb would die. It's blood painted across the home. Do you see what's happening here? This lamb is a substitute. It's a substitute for the firstborn son of that household. The blood on the doorpost is not for God's benefit. He knows what's going on. He's not like, oh, I wonder which house it is that I need to pass over. He knows. The blood is for their benefit. It's a vivid and clear image, not easily forgotten, a reminder that it was not their holiness or their morality, not even their ethnicity as Israelites that was saving them that night. They were saved only by the blood of the Passover lamb. That is why God passed over their homes. But it's not just a sacrifice to save them from something. It's also a meal to celebrate being saved to something. Not just a sacrifice from something, but also a meal to celebrate being saved to something. They were saved from God's judgment that night, but they were also saved into a new life of freedom filled with endless possibilities. Because on that night, this final plague would be the final straw for Pharaoh to force Israel to leave. And so the lamb is not discarded, 
Instead, it becomes the centerpiece of a meal, a feast enjoyed as a family, or if there were small families, a bunch of families in one home. And it's not this over-the-top gourmet extravaganza. It's not that kind of feast. No, it's a meal that's not just about the food, but the very act of eating tells a story. Tells a story of rescue and remembrance and deliverance. The bitter herbs are easy to gather. You know, not really easy. They just grow everywhere. You just grab them, chuck them in. Flatbread doesn't need time to prove. So again, easy to make, easy to store and carry. They're supposed to eat it with their traveling clothes worn, the sandals on their feet and a staff in their hand. And so the sacrifice of the lamb prepares the way for Israel to be brought out of Egypt. And as they eat it, they're ready to go, knowing that any moment now they would be set free. They would be propelled out of a whole nation begging for them to go, even giving them their valuables and their treasures as a little bonus. Not just saved, not just delivered, but blessed abundantly. And it might be just the Israelites as well. We know from chapter 12 to 38 uh, that many others went with Israel. This means people from other lands. And I assume probably even some Egyptians as well. Those who believed in Israel's God, who recognized the signs and obeyed and had faith. And that's why there's provision given here by God for foreigners to join this Passover meal as well every year afterwards. It's a meal for all those who come under God's covenant with his people to be their protector and deliverer. So the Passover represents God's incredible mercy in that they do not get what they deserve. They don't get death. But it's also a symbol of marvelous grace because they, do, they also get what they do not deserve. Life and blessing. No wonder God says in 12.24, obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance. What's an ordinance? Well, an ordinance is like, it's kind of the symbolic enactment of an important truth. It's a playing out of something important to you. Something not just to remember, to recall, like you could from a book, but something that is kind of sinks down deep into your heart because you play it out, you enact it. And each, it means that each year Israel would again feel the sting of judgment, the grief of sacrifice, the joy of deliverance, and the gratitude for grace. And so the song of mercy and grace through the Passover would be celebrated from generation to generation. But of course there's a problem in all this. Some of you may have picked it up. Uh, we ask, how, what's the deal with the lamb? How could a lamb, just an animal from the field, how could that be a fitting substitute for a person? How could a lamb hold back the righteous judgment of God? How, what's, is it magic blood across the doorway? What is it? Well, the answer is it, it couldn't be. It could never be enough. It still can't be. And this is where we begin to see how Scripture as a whole, the Bible, hangs together with such incredible consistency. 
over thousands of years, the theme of Exodus and Passover, gradually build and build and build and become this incredible song of a thousand harmonies. When God looked down at the Israelite camp that night, he didn't see the blood of, just see the blood of lambs. He saw the blood of the true lamb. He saw the shed blood of one perfect enough and innocent enough and beloved enough to be a saving sacrifice. And this is really about not just a lamb, but a lion. A lion and a lamb. Because it's no accident that the night before Jesus' death, we find him celebrating the Passover with his disciples. That's no accident. The hints were always there for those who had eyes to see. Think of Isaiah who predicted a Messiah who would be led like a lamb to a slaughter. What about John the Baptist who came proclaiming that here is Jesus, the Lamb of God? But as they ate that, that final meal together, the disciples were not aware of this. Nothing seemed unusual here. They were simply doing what they had done every year of their lives, celebrating the Passover. Until Jesus, now leading the meal began to change things. Because he picked up the unleavened bread and he said, this is my body. And he picked up the cup of wine and said, this is my blood. And it always stumped me, why is the lamb never mentioned? Because it was right there, sitting there on the table. The lamb, the centerpiece of the meal. Why is it not mentioned there? I think because later, the gospel writers understood what was going on. The true lamb was not the lamb there on the table, but the lamb who was with them, sharing the meal with them. Jesus is the only one who qualifies as our substitute because he is the beloved son of God. He is spotless and pure, completely without sin. His death was preceded by a great darkness that covered the land. His blood was shed and painted on wood, not on a doorway, but on a cross. And so on that night before he died, Jesus stands among his disciples with cup and bread in hand. And he proclaims that this Passover is different from every Passover that had ever happened before because this Passover reveals that it's actually all about him. God would pour out his ferocious justice on his own son and would pass over all who came under his son's blood. And so on the cross we see two things that should not go together go together in harmony. Judgment and mercy, justice and grace, anger and love. At the beginning of this series, I mentioned how the Exodus melody, the kind of refrain, echoes throughout the rest of the Bible, all the way, in fact, to the book of Revelation. Because John, who wrote Revelation, describes this fantastic vision, this heavenly picture of, of what's a glimpse behind the curtain of what's happening behind space and time. And in chapter 5, he, he sees this being who is described as a lion. 
And this person, this, this lion, has the, uh, the authority to open this scroll. And this scroll represents judgment, as we see later. When the scroll is opened, judgment is unleashed on the world. It's saying that just as there was a final judgment for Egypt, there will also be a final judgment for earth. A final day when God will act like a ferocious lion, doing away with sin, evil, and death forever. And all who, like Pharaoh, stubbornly refuse to turn to him and believe in him and reject idols and self-worship will get caught up in that judgment. But what's stunning is that this being, this person, is somehow recognized as both a lion and a lamb. A lamb with the marks of death. And we ask, how can he be both? How can he be a lamb and a lion? How can he be both alive and with the marks of death? Well, it reminds me of one of my favorite parts of the Chronicles of Narnia. You may well have heard it before or read it. Uh, when the children uh, first hear about King Aslan from Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. <laughs> I'll read the quote. I love it. Uh, uh, Mr. Beaver says, uh, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, says Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Jesus is the great lion, and he is not safe. He cannot be tamed. He is mighty in judgment. Before him the nations tremble. He demands awe and reverence, and he will come again to judge the world and bring justice. He's not safe, but he is good. He's the lion. He's also the lamb who was slain. And his blood was the price to gather together a new Exodus people who will be brought safely through the coming judgment. Thousands of years ago, Israel sat and shared the first Passover, waiting for God to pass over them and rescue them. And so today, as Christians, we also share in a meal waiting for Jesus to return and usher us safely through that final judgment. And this meal is a transformed Passover, what we call the Lord's Supper, or Holy Communion. And it's no longer a sacrifice because there is, there is no real blood involved, I promise. And that's because Jesus' death is once for all. It cannot be repeated. It must not be repeated. But it's still a meal. It's a meal of solemnity because it reminds us of the extent of our sin, that it runs far deeper than we know or imagine. And the even greater extent of Christ's sacrifice, more horrible, more painful, more agonizing than we can imagine. It's a meal, it's a solemn meal, but it's also... A meal of celebration. Because Jesus, our Passover lamb, is not dead. He's risen. And not just risen, he is coming again. Because God is not yet done with his salvation. 
We have been saved from the penalty of sin by his death on the cross and we are being saved by, from sin's power as we're transformed in our inner being day by day. And friends, we will be saved from the penalty of death itself when we're brought into a resurrection and given new life in a new world. God is not yet done with his salvation. And so just as the elements of the Passover, the lamb, the bread, the herbs, made the exodus real for the Israelites every year since, so as we eat this bread and drink this cup, the wounds of Christ, his sacrifice, become real for us. And in some incredibly mysterious way, God gives us grace through it. And we experience his mercy. That's why this is a meal for believers. Because to share in this meal is to say, I can no longer trust in my own goodness. I can't trust in my own righteousness, my own morality, my own ability to save myself. I can't trust in any God of my own making. I trust only in the blood of Jesus, the Lamb who was slain. And I trust that it's his blood that will see me through death and see me through judgment. This is a meal for believers. It's also a family meal. Just as it was originally, uh, as the Passover was celebrated by families and families and families and by a family of families. So we as Christians, as part of a church, gather and take it together, reminded that God through his, the shed blood of his son Jesus, has made for himself an exodus people. A people, a family, who will do life together, will encourage each other, and will be brought through into a new world together. We share this with our spiritual brothers and sisters, who we know we will share eternity with. This is a foretaste of what is to come. And so in a few minutes, we will gather around this supper. And if you're a follower of Jesus, I hope it will be perhaps more significant than it ever has been before. So let's just pray. Gracious God, we come before you in all your holiness and I pray I fill you with awe and reverence, knowing that you are ferocious in your justice. And that were it not for the blood of the Lamb, we would be consumed by it, and it would be right. Were you to take every life, it would be right. And so we're in awe of your grace, that, that you do not do that. And then instead you are patient with us, and you are patient with this world, holding off your day of judgment so that as many as possible might be saved. Father, may we be filled with grief, godly grief for our sin, but filled even more with joy because we have been brought through judgment and will be brought through death on that last day. Father, may it instill in us a humility a confidence, a hope, and a joy 
that you are with us and you will always be with us. And Father, may we be ever more grateful for this good gospel which tells us that Jesus, our Passover lamb, is still in the midst of us, the centerpiece of history and the centerpiece of our lives, the cornerstone on which we stand, and that he alone is worthy to open the scrolls and he alone is worthy of our worship and praise. So may our lives be all about him. May our lives be testimonies of mercy and grace to a world that so desperately needs it. And we pray this in his great name. Amen.